Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. I want to start this morning uh, by asking us to take just a second to take an honest inventory of the condition of our souls. Now, sometimes when we hear the word soul, we think some sort of like vague spiritual part of us. But the truth is when we talk about the soul and when the Bible talks about the soul, we're talking about the holistic reality that comprises human experience. So when I say that we need to take an inventory of our souls this morning, here's what I really mean. Um, How are we doing spiritually, mentally, emotionally, relationally, and physically. That's what it means to take an inventory of our souls. How are we doing spiritually, mentally, emotionally, basically all of you? How are we doing? And I think this is a timely question because we've just lived through one of, if not the most disruptive season in all of our lifetimes. 2020 will forever be remembered for a global pandemic the shutdown of all normal life, um, political war, conspiracy theories, racial tension due to systemic injustice, and almost endless personal loss. And so as the smoke clears, we have to begin to take stock of of not only what we've been through, but also where we are as, as a result, because where we are as a result informs who we are becoming. And so as As I think about my own soul, as I think about my family, as I think about my friends and the constant conversations that I'm having with people in our church family, here's here's what I've observed. In general, many of us are feeling better than we did in the thick of last year. I mean, there were some dark moments throughout the last really 16 months. And so in general, not all of us, but in general, many of us are feeling better than we did in the thick of last year. But here's the problem. Um, Better than terrible is too low a bar, right? Like just better than like, I mean, I'm alive is not a win for anyone. And so even though things are better, And even though things continue to return to normal, we're we're all still left with the effects of the past year. That kid has got some pipes. That is impressive. He's going to be a preacher or she. I don't know. I can't see from here, but it's got it going on. You know, the, the good news is there is language for the way that most of us would describe the way that we're feeling. We actually have language and, and words for it. In psychology, there is a, a spectrum of mental health. On the one end of the spectrum is depression, okay? A place that many of us became increasingly acquainted with last year. Depression is often marked by things like feeling despondent, drained, worthless, and hopeless. And on the other end of the spectrum is flourishing, which is living with this strong sense of meaning in life, 
feeling like you have some degree of of mastery over current experience and a, a deep sense of mattering to others. Now, fewer of us may be experiencing deep circumstantial depression, but my guess is not many of us probably really feel like we're flourishing either. See, most of us are experiencing what researchers refer to as languishing. Uh, Organizational psychologist Adam Grant wrote an amazing article on this topic back in April. And in it, he writes this. He says, quote, languishing is the neglected middle child of mental health, which I think is amazing. He goes on. He says, it's the void between depression and flourishing. You don't have symptoms of mental illness, but you're not the picture of mental health either. Languishing dulls your motivation disrupts your ability to focus, and triples the odds that you will cut back on work. It appears to be more common than major depression, and in some ways, it may be a bigger risk factor for mental illness, end quote. So make sure that you catch this. Just because languishing doesn't appear as severe as depression does not mean it lacks the potential to be equally dangerous. And here's why. The research of Corey Keyes, who is the sociologist who coined this term languishing, found that those at greatest risk of major depression and anxiety disorders in the next 10 years, they're not showing signs of it right now. They're experiencing this state that we call languishing. And so I bring this up this morning for two reasons. Number one, we need accurate language to openly and honestly describe where we are. And so if we're not depressed, but we're also not flourishing, it's probably most accurate to say that we are experiencing some degree of of languishing. And so when we say, hey, how are you? We don't have to just go, oh, I'm okay, or I'm fine. We have language. We can say, you know, I mean, things are not as bad as they were, but I definitely feel like I'm languishing in some certain ways. But another reason I think it's important that we talk about this is we need to accurately diagnose the discouraging reality of where we are so that we can effectively seek help from Jesus in the midst of it. And this is why we're going to spend the summer months in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul writes to discouraged Christians living in different circumstances than ours, but with souls in a similar state, a state of languishing. Paul's most dominant subject in this letter is the subject of joy. The word that we translate as joy or rejoice appears 16 times in all of its form throughout this short letter. And what makes that subject so significant is the situation that Paul was in when he wrote this letter. Because again, it would be one thing if Paul wrote this letter sitting on a beach, from a, in a beach chair in some like super exotic location and everything in his life was just really falling into place and clicking along for him. But listen, that was not Paul's situation. Paul wrote this letter while he was imprisoned in Rome. And so at best, if you know anything about his biography, he is at best a few years, maybe even just mere months from his impending execution. His friends had largely abandoned him. He is alone He is nearing the end, and somehow he is filled with joy, and he writes to encourage these early early Christians so that they could experience joy as well. And so to that end, welcome to week one of Dear Discouraged. If you have a Bible or a mobile app that you'd like to read on, do me a favor and open up to the New Testament letter 
of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. And I want to call this message a prayer for encouraging progress. A prayer for encouraging progress. So Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, let's start with Paul's greeting. Paul writes this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul starts with what would have been a standard greeting. We learn who the letter was written by. We learn who the letter is written to, as well as a few themes that we're going to see throughout. So it was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Timothy is most likely included due to his connection to the Philippians and his partnership with Paul. And Paul writes this letter to the church at Philippi. Now, Philippi was named for King Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. This was primarily a Gentile city. We know that because there was no Jewish synagogue there. So this was a a highly influential city. It had been uh, extremely fruitful, but it was also a spiritually pagan city. And that made it a prime place for a new church. And if you want to read about uh, the birth of the church in Philippi, you can read about that story later in Acts chapter 16, because that is when Paul and Silas started this new church. But now Paul moves directly from his greeting to an opening thanksgiving and prayer for them. And in this, we have the first window into the heart and mind of Paul. He begins to give us a view into how he could have so much joy in such great difficulty. And what we begin to see is that Paul's heart and mind were uniquely fixed on Jesus. And so here we're going to see just a few works of Jesus that give us reason for joy, even when our circumstances are exceptionally difficult. The first is this. Number one, Jesus frees us to formative friendship. Jesus frees us to formative friendship. Look at verse three. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you, in my every prayer, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Skip to verse 7. I'm going to come back to 6. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul opens here by telling them that he gives thanks to God every time he thinks of them due to what he calls their partnership in the gospel. Now, this word partnership is the Greek word koinonia, which indicates an act of sharing in the activities or the privileges of an intimate association or group. And this is actually a constant theme throughout this letter, and it's crucial to our own experience of joy in life. And so the question really is, what does it mean to be partners in the gospel? Now, the sense in which the word partnership is used here has business overtones. So I want you to think about just for a second, like a business partnership. Two people, at least, make a commitment to invest their time, efforts, and their money into a joint venture. Now, when you're a partner, you have vested interest in the success of whatever your business is because you are invested in it. And so for it to truly be a partnership, all parties have to pour themselves out toward whatever end they've agreed upon. And that's a picture of what Paul is so filled with joy over. The people who comprised this church 
from the very first day of its inception, had been partnering with Paul in the gospel. And this is why Paul speaks of such strong affection for them in verses 7 and 8. And so if I were going to summarize, what exactly does this mean? It means this. Partnership in the gospel is a relationship that is built on a mutual commitment to following Jesus together. And so at Ridgeline, we have started using the language of what we call formative friendship to describe this. We want to live together in a particular type of relationship that forms the image of Jesus in us more and more. And so basically, we want to become like more Jesus-y together. That's what we're after. And this is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We tend to think of Jesus' death as being mainly something that frees us from sin. And sometimes we forget he not only freed us from something, he freed us to something. Namely, formative friendship. And so here's, here's why this is so important, considering our current state of languishing. Aside from the almost 4 million deaths, I would argue that the single most destructive aspect of the COVID year was the isolation of it. It forced us to live in conflict with how God created us. We were created for community, which is why loneliness is so uniquely destructive to the human psyche. But more specifically, this deep formative friendship that Paul calls partnership in the gospel, it is Jesus' vision for the local church. This is what should be present in every Bible-believing, Jesus-worshiping church. The problem is, we have this tendency, not just those of us in this room, but modern-day Christians in general, we have a tendency to diminish our faith to maybe attending a service a couple times a month. And so I want to challenge us on this front for a second. If all we do, if all we do is we attend here once a week or maybe a couple of times a month, that's not really partnership. And if all we do is consume, but we never contribute, that's not really partnership. Gospel partnership is committing to a particular type of friendship that is bent on following Jesus together. And your first steps in that here at Ridgeline are not complicated. You fill out an info card, as Pastor Tyler tells you, every single week in the close. You set up a time to connect with me so we can get to know one another and then start to jump into a few meetups. And with time and intention, formative friendship will begin to grow. Jesus frees us to formative friendship. And so let's move toward that together. But that's not all he says. Number two, he tells us that Jesus finishes what he starts in us. Jesus finishes what he starts in us. Go back to verse six, because Paul writes this. He says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you, so he's talking about Jesus, he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, as we're going to see more and more, the overarching tone of this letter is one of encouragement. Uh, if you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, they all take on a different tone. Like Galatians is like kind of like a throat punch, okay? It's pretty direct. It's not super encouraging. There's lots of good news in it, but he was addressing particular conflict and issues. This letter he writes to encourage these people. And there is no greater encouragement, I don't think, than what Paul states here. Because Paul says that he is sure that God is going to complete the good work that he began in them. And so I just want you to think about that for a second. For all the brokenness in our lives, 
for all the mistakes that we make, for all of the places that we fall short, for all of the ways that we fail, how amazing is the promise that Jesus will finish what he started in us? I don't know about you, but I tend to be better at starting than I am at finishing. I hope this is something that I'm growing in, but I definitely still see signs of it regularly. For instance, um, when Tam and I lived in Chicago about five or six years ago, we owned this home that was built in the 1950s, and it was pretty well maintained, but it, it really did still need quite a bit of work. And, uh, and, and some of that work I did a good job of starting and a pretty poor job of finishing. Uh, and one example of this was on our garage, there was this side door that was completely dilapidated and falling apart. The bones of the door were fine, but the paint was peeling off and it basically looked like the entrance to a haunted house. And so I went to Home Depot and I bought everything I needed to refinish it, brought it all home and uh, put it in the garage and guess what happened? Nothing, nothing happened. It literally sat in the garage for two more years while we lived in the house. When we were moving out, there was the paint and all of the supplies needed to fix that door. I started, but I didn't finish. And thankfully, Jesus is not like that in our lives. He always finishes what he starts. And so here's why I think that's such great news. Most of us are painfully aware that we are yet unfinished projects, right? Most of us live with a tangible, like very few of us are walking around going, whew, 32 and uh, I've arrived. I will never be better than I am right now. No one thinks that, man. We all live with a very tangible sense that we are unfinished projects. But rather than live at peace with the fact that Jesus loves and accepts us where we are, and rather than see all the good transforming work God is doing in us, all we tend to see is everything that is unfinished. Hence, so much of our discouragement. Emotionally speaking, discouragement drains our motivation to continue working for progress in our faith. But the, the promise that Jesus will finish what he started in you means that he is producing progress in you even now. Paul reminds them of Jesus' commitment to finish what he started, not just so they will be encouraged about what Jesus will do, but also because of what he is already doing. And seeing progress has everything to do with combating the discouragement and the languishing that we're so prone towards. Do you know that, that research reveals that of all the things that produce the most joy and satisfaction in day-to-day -day work and life, that the most important factor is making progress in meaningful work. It's been called the progress principle. And what is more meaningful work than growing to be more like Jesus? And so Paul writes this letter and he says, man, I want you to see all of the progress that I see in you. And so in light of this, here are two practices I deeply believe that we need to adopt. Number one, we need to learn to humbly recognize the progress God is making in our lives. That is not pride and that is not arrogance. But it's another, you've heard me beat this drum, I will continue to beat it. One of the reasons that journaling is such a soul-refreshing practice for us is that you can look back 
on who you were and see that by God's grace, because of the progress he's worked in your life, that that's not who you are anymore. So there's a lot that's still unfinished in all of us at all times, but by God's grace, we're not who we were. And so we need to learn to be able to see God's progress in our lives. And then secondly, and I think this is equally important, we need to commit to point out progress in one another constantly. We need to become very adept at going, you know, you know what I see God doing in you? And then speak life-giving words over people about the progress that God is working in our hearts and in our souls. Jesus is going to finish what he started. And so let's celebrate that progress that he's making in us right now. And then thirdly and finally is this, Jesus fills our lives with righteousness. Jesus fills our lives with righteousness. Look at verse 9. He says, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. Now pause there. So notice what Paul is going to pray for them, despite everything he could pray for them. And there's a long, endless list. But what he chooses to pray was that their love would keep on growing. Paul wanted their love to be plentiful, ever-increasing, or overflowing more and more with knowledge and discernment. Now, the knowledge that he prays their love would grow in is not just knowledge about something, but rather a type of knowledge that comes from actual experience. And so it's kind of like the difference between an athlete and a sports fan. I love sports. Uh, We have one TV in our house, and there are more people in my home that don't care about sports, so I don't watch sports very often. But I do enjoy watching sports. But, you know, some fans, this might be some of you, follow their sports so closely. They know every player. They know every stat. They know virtually every detail about the sport, the team, the players they love. They may not be able to find Romans in their Bible, but they remember like some dead guy's batting average from 30 years ago. And so some some sports fans just know everything about the sport. But think about it. Like the actual athletes playing the sport that the fans are watching They have a very different kind of experiential knowledge, right? Because they lived it. And that's the kind of knowledge that Paul wants our love to grow in. The second word, discernment, has wrapped up in it the practical outworking of this knowledge. So what Paul's praying would grow in their lives and in ours is a knowledge about Jesus that cultivates love. And it's not just this baseless love that's rooted in mere feelings and sentiment, and it's not knowledge as mere information about God. Paul's prayer is that we would grow more and more in an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus that produces deeper love for him and deeper love for one another. And notice the reason. Look at verse 10. So that, he says, you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul's prayer is that they grow in love for Jesus that helps them to learn to approve things that are superior. And so I just want you to break this down in your mind for just a second. Some things in life are simply superior to others. For instance, love is superior to hate. Service is superior to consumption. Humility is superior to pride. 
Generosity is superior to hoarding. Some things in life are just simply superior to others. And Paul's point here is that relationship with Jesus is one of learning to discern what Jesus says is superior for our flourishing. But the challenge is so much of what Jesus says is superior in our lives is counterintuitive or it's contrary to our desires or what our culture says is superior. And so the idea is that we would grow in knowledge-rooted love that would help us to discern the superior way of Jesus and to so be pure, he says, when Christ returns. Now, that doesn't mean that this side of the return of Christ, anyone is going to reach perfection. He's simply saying that we should see this ever-growing Christ-likeness taking place in our lives, where we are filled with more and more righteousness. And, And don't miss that this righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. Foundational to spiritual growth is the faith that Jesus accomplishes it. We work to make progress, knowing that our progress is motivated, sustained, and made effective by Jesus. And so no matter our circumstances, we can fight for joy because Jesus frees us to formative friendship, He finishes what he starts in us, and he fills our lives with righteousness. And so I want you to notice, not just what Paul says, but in general in these verses, what it is that he's doing. Paul is trying to shift their focus. And here's why. Nothing informs joy like focus. It's not circumstantial alone. It's not based on how we feel alone. Nothing informs joy like focus. And so I want you to notice that at no point does Paul try to diminish the difficulty of his circumstances, nor theirs. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't say like, oh, it's really not that bad. At no point does he do that. Paul knows he's in prison. Paul knew this could be the end for him. No one needed to remind Paul of the difficulty and the danger of his present circumstances. And I point this out because I would never want anyone to think that following Jesus means pretending like life is always comfortable and happy. Jesus is not trying to make us delusional. All he wants for us is that we would see a bigger picture in our hardship. See, sometimes we have a bad habit of believing that there are good seasons of life and there are bad seasons of life. But the reality is both always exist simultaneously at all times. You notice that like every season of life has some mixture of both joy and pain. And so it's not that the circumstances causing our languishing are not real. They're just not the whole story. And I was reminded of this in a powerful way this week. I don't know if anybody else is watching America's Got Talent. Big fans in our house, okay? Big, big fans. I like to watch people's life change in three minutes. Huge fan of that. So uh, earlier this week, the notoriously difficult to impress Simon Cowell was brought to tears by this amazing woman named Jane. She's a musician that performs under the name Nightbird. And we get to hear a little bit of her story on the show. In 2017, She was diagnosed for the very first time with cancer, and she was given just six months to live. 
Yet a year later, she was miraculously declared cancer-free. But then sadly, just a few months after that, her cancer, cancer came back, and she was given again almost no chance of survival. And if this wasn't enough, her husband of five years divorced her in the midst of this. I'm here to tell you, that guy's hating his life right now. And so she steps on to the stage and shares a little bit of her story. And uh, she beats cancer a second time. And this week she came on and she got to sing her new song uh, that she wrote called It's Okay. And I was just going to tell you about her, uh, but I decided at the last minute it'd be more effective for you to actually be able to see her, hear her story, and her song. So take just a second, turn your eyes to the screen, and watch this with me. Hi. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm awesome. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, we're happy you are. What's your name? My name's Jane. When I sing, I go by Nightbird. Oh, that's nice. Nightbird? That's right. Uh, did you sing, do you sing for a living? Um, not, not recently. Where are you from? I'm from Zanesville, Ohio. Okay, how old are you? I'm 30. 30 years old, and the dream is to be a singer. What are you gonna be singing for us tonight? I'm singing an original song called It's Okay. It's Okay. Yeah. It is, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. What is It's Okay about? Uh, it's Okay is the story of the last year of my life. All right, and who are you here with? I'm here by myself. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you do for a living? Um, I have not been working for quite a few years. I've been dealing with cancer. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm okay. All right. Can, can I ask you a question? How are you now? Uh, last time I checked, I had some cancer in my lungs, my spine, and my liver. Wow. So you're not okay? Uh, well, not in every way, no. You got a beautiful smile and a beautiful glow, mm -hmm. and nobody would know. Thank you. It's important that uh, everyone knows I'm so much more than the bad things that yes. happen to me. Yes. All right. Sing for us. Good luck. Nightbird. Huh? 
hundred pages, but I burned them all. Yeah, I burned them all. I blow through yellow lights and don't look back at all. I don't look back at all. Oh, You know, it's funny because singers come on and, and, I, and I think about authenticity. You know, when you feel it, when it moves you, that felt like the most authentic thing I have heard this season. That was surprising. It was powerful, it was heartfelt, and I think you're amazing. You gave me chills. I mean, your voice is so beautiful to listen to. It was beautiful all the way around. Your voice is stunning. Mm -hmm. It is. Absolutely stunning. And I, I totally agree with what Howie said, you know, about authenticity. There was something about that song after the way you just almost casually told us what you're going through and, oh, you know. You can't wait until life isn't hard anymore before you decide to be happy. There are, however, there have been some great singers this year. Um, and I'm not going to give you a yes. I'm going to give you something else. is not zero percent. Two percent is something. And I wish people knew how amazing it is. You blew us all away. You are the voice we all need to hear this year. That was way more than okay. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. God, that really got to me. 
it pushes all the heartstring oh. buttons, right? And yet she's still so strong. You know what they, there's a couple things they don't share in that clip. One is that Jane is a Christian. And uh, if you follow her on Instagram, she's been writing for a very long time about her experience. And, uh, the, you know, the morning after this performance, she woke up and found that her, her song was number one on iTunes, which is pretty amazing, especially because she's written like three songs in her whole life. And at the end of all this, <clears throat> like many of you, I just probably sat there and I just kept wondering, like, how is this woman so obviously filled with joy? She has a 2% chance of beating this most recent bout. And so this golden buzzer and chart-topping song aside, she literally may not live to see the end of this show. And so how does someone, in the midst of those types of circumstances, still live with joy? And if you paid attention, in the beginning of the clip, she explains it. She said, I am so much more than the bad things that happened to me. And so I just want you to hear that your life right now might be objectively complicated. Maybe you feel overwhelmed on every front. Maybe you are being tested like never before. Maybe you just cannot seem to shake the funk of last year. And even if all of that is true, there is more to your story. That's not all of it. Jesus has invited us to friendship. Jesus is making very real progress in us, and he is going to finish what he started. He is, whether we feel it or not, whether we are actively engaged in the work ourselves, Jesus is filling our lives with righteousness more and more. The question is, will we see it? Will we make the deliberate, disciplined, intentional choice to look for all of that in our lives? Nothing informs joy like where we focus. And so Paul's invitation to us at the start of this letter is to focus our eyes on who Jesus is and on everything that he's doing. Let me pray for us. And then if there's some questions, we'll do just a couple of those. All right? Bow your heads with me. Father, I thank you that you are a good God who loves us so much more than we can possibly comprehend. And Lord, you know the state and condition of every soul in this room. Lord, you know where we are on this spectrum that we've talked about. You know those of us that might genuinely be experiencing tremendous joy right now. You know those of us who are struggling in a very dark way and you know how many of us are living in the middle and just experiencing this season of languishing. So Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are aware of all of that. And I pray that you would meet us where we are. That you would help us heed this call to focus our attention, not just on what's hard in our current circumstances, not just on what's hard in our past, but also where Jesus is very much present and working and active and good. 
Lord, would you please discipline our minds to focus them on Christ? And Lord, we, we pray that you would work deeply in our lives. And Lord, even though we don't know her, we pray for Jane, that you would heal her body again. And we thank you for a real-time example of someone who loves you and knows you and is experiencing tremendous suffering and difficulty and still has joy in the midst of it. Lord, focus our eyes on Jesus in such a way that we'd be able to follow that example. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.